Welcome to the series, The Irish-Latin America Connection. My name is Mary McNamara, and this is the first programme of our series, where we will be exploring the experiences of Irish people who travelled or lived in Latin America, and visit some of the global issues on the way. Are you ready for the trip? You kind of have to remember that after 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was a real feeling of pessimism and Thatcherism and Reaganism from the 1980s was really beginning to spread to other countries as well. And all of a sudden in 1994, just on the 1st of January, we got this news of totally impoverished Mexicans rising up um, and fighting the Mexican army the very day that NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, came into effect. So it really put the lie to like, you know, all this people talking about the end of history and the end of um, popular struggle. The other thing about the Zapatistas was they weren't interested in just taking power and dictating to everybody else what we had to do and how we had to live. They wanted a much more horizontal grassroots organization. They, they wanted to talk to other people and validate what we were trying to do in our own cities or towns, in our own ways. Um, and that, that was really inspiring for us. Um, and then when you were, went and lived in the communities, you found that really inspiring stuff, but you also found the very humble stuff. You found all the contradictions, but they really believed that, that they would be able to someday live without guns and having to defend themselves against state violence. In the last year, year and a half, I, know I keep bumping into these people that I was in Mexico with. And I think that there's something saying to me, Nick, time has come. It's, I, I suppose it's the most, most critical thing I ever did with my life. Mexico was very different, you know, traveling there. Was, I think it was really worthwhile, but it was also something that changed me very much as a person. ¿De qué tenemos que pedir perdón? ¿De qué nos van a perdonar? ¿De no morirnos de hambre? ¿De no callarnos en nuestra miseria? Why do we need to be pardoned? What are we to be pardoned for? For not dying of hunger? For not accepting humbly the historic burden of disdain and abandonment? For having risen up in arms after we found all other paths closed? For not heeding the Chiapas Penal Code, one of the most absurd and repressive in history? for showing the rest of the country and the whole world that human dignity still exists even among the world's poorest peoples, for having made careful preparations before we began our uprising, for bringing guns to battle instead of bows and arrows, for being Mexicans, for being mainly indigenous, for calling on the Mexican people to fight by whatever means possible for what belongs to them, for fighting for liberty, democracy and justice, for not following the example of previous guerrilla armies, for refusing to surrender, for refusing to sell ourselves out? Who should we ask for pardon? And who can grant it? Those who for many years glutted themselves at the table of plenty while we sat with death so often, we finally stopped fearing it? Those who fill their pockets and their souls with empty promises and words? Or should we ask pardon from the dead, our dead, who died natural deaths, of natural causes like measles, whooping cough, 
breakbone fever, cholera, typhus, mononucleosis, tetanus, pneumonia, malaria and other lovely gastrointestinal and pulmonary diseases. Are dead, so very dead, so democratically dead from sorrow because no one did anything, because the dead, our dead, went just like that, with no one keeping count, with no one saying enough, which would at least have granted some meaning to their deaths, a meaning no one ever sought for them, the dead of all times, who are now dying once again, but now in order to live? Should we ask pardon from those who deny us the right and capacity to govern ourselves, from those who don't respect our customs and our culture, and who ask us for identification papers and obedience to a law whose existence and moral basis we don't accept, from those who oppress us, torture us, assassinate us, disappear us for the grave crime of wanting a piece of land, not too big and not too small, but just a simple piece of land on which we can grow something to fill our stomachs, who should we ask for pardon and who can grant it? The President of the Republic, Secretaries of State, the Senators, the Deputies, the Governors, the Municipal Presidents, the Police Officers, the Federal Army, the Great Lords of Banking, Industry, Commerce and Land, the Political Parties, the Intellectuals, Gallup and Nexus, the Media, the Students, Teachers, the Settlers, the Workers, Farmers, Indigenous, the Dead of Nonsensical Debts, who has to ask for forgiveness and who can grant it? Well, that is all for now. Health and a hug, and with this cold both things are appreciated, I think, even if they came from a professional of violence. Rebel Commander Marcos, Zapatista National Liberation Army. Aunque venga de un profesional de la violencia, subcomandante insurgente Marcos. This was a rebellion of the indigenous people that suffered hardship at the hands of landowners and corrupt governments. Many would think this could reflect Ireland in 1798 or in 1848 or 1916, but we are talking about Mexico. On the 1st of January 1994, armed and masked indigenous men and women swarmed out of the jungles before dawn in southernmost Mexican state of Chiapas. Their rebellion would turn the eyes of the world to the, ignored up till then, reality of the indigenous populations of Latin America. Chiapas was the poorest state in Mexico, populated by the descendants of the ancient Maya civilization. The memory of the people stretched back to before the beginning of time. They were enslaved by blatant discrimination and racism that deprived them of their dignity and life. On the 1st of January 1994, the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, took effect. This deal eliminated all the economic protection that the poor of Mexico had left. The 1st of January 1994 also marked the celebration of 500 years of the arrival of the Spanish to America, and NAFTA was perceived as yet another abuse in those 500 years of darkness and misery since the European arrival. Taking the name Zapatista after Emiliano Zapata, the Mexican rebel who led the presence against the rich and powerful a hundred years earlier, the indigenous people took arms to say they had had enough. On that 1st of January 1994, Nick Jones wasn't yet aware of how important this indigenous movement would be for him. My brother was working with the Irish Mexico group 
who were supporting the Zapatistas, and they were talking a lot about neoliberalism all around the world. Um, and so he kind of dragged me along to a few meetings, and I started to see, yeah, actually there was a link there, and that was kind of what it was all about. And then there were a lot of the Zapatista solidarity groups around Europe who were trying to organize, they did organize a big gathering, and because I had good Spanish, I ended up being one of the main translators for the event. But the bureaucracy of it all kind of burnt me out. So instead of sticking around, I decided I'd hop on a plane to Mexico and go and see it all for myself. The first year I went was 1997. I stayed for three months. I came back and kind of rent would have been the middle of December. The Irish Mexico group had just established um, a human rights observation camp in the community. I was living in a Mayan community where they, at that stage, didn't have a lot of experience of outsiders. And they were very cagey about protecting their culture. So there were only a few people who were kind of would come up and talk for more than a minute or two. That was pretty tough, actually, the first three months. And... In some ways, I was quite glad to get back to Ireland. But almost immediately, I started to miss Mexico a lot because uh, it really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. About four days after I got back to Dublin, I remember I went to a Christmas party in a friend's house. And at one o'clock in the morning, I was standing there with a can of Guinness in my hand. And somebody walked in the door and said, Nick, have you heard the news? There's been a huge massacre in Chiapas, in Mexico, which is where I've been living. And that really kind of just pulled the rug out from under my feet. Um, so I spent the next year working very hard on solidarity here in Ireland, which kind of really was actually probably the most effective form of solidarity in many ways. But I found it really difficult because there were a lot of army invasions of communities going on during that year I was in Ireland. Um, very violent stuff. The army and the police going into communities, smashing them up, um, poisoning the wells, burning their huts. Got away again towards the end of 1998. Um, I went back to the same community and they were really happy to see me and I was really happy to see them and... It was like I'd only been gone a week. Yeah, I spent a little over maybe a year and a quarter with them then. And most of the time we were just out working in the fields. So we got up at six o'clock in the morning and went off to help people. Two of my friends from the community decided that they were going to um, move house to a different community to help set that up. And they get caught by the army with a balaclava and a paliacate, which is the local kind of bandana in their rucksacks. They were thrown into jail. And I went and visited them. And that was quite a harrowing experience. And we had other things going on. Um, I often had to travel around alone. Um, that was quite tough. It wasn't really recommended, but... Things were pretty rough and you know, I took the chance and luckily it, I never got caught or picked up. Um, I used to, I actually, there was a lot of pressure because the immigration police were on the lookout for basically people who were doing human rights work and they wanted to get us out of that area. 
Um, so we found ways to sneak around through the forests at night. And I, I got to know a lot of the trails that, you know, the, the local indigenous people became very proud of me. The use of the internet by the Zapatista movement transformed a local revolt into a global issue, creating a wave of solidarity and support from around the world, and not only in politics. French musician Manu Chao was inspired to travel throughout Latin America playing to poor communities, making of the Zapatista Manifesto part and parcel of his music. Jose Saramago, Portuguese writer and recipient of the 1998 Nobel Prize in Literature, expressed openly his support for the movement and his belief that it had been the seed of further indigenous activism in Latin America. Francoise Houard, director of the Tricontinental Centre, recognises its impact on politics and internal relations. Brothers, we were born of the night. We live in the night. We will die in her. But the light will be tomorrow for others, for all those who today weep at the night, for those who have been denied the day, for those for whom death is a gift, for those who are denied life. The light will be for all of them, for everyone everything. For us pain and anguish, for us the joy of rebellion, for us a future denied, for us the dignity of insurrection, for us nothing. They came to the front line and they said you would have to talk to us. It happened in Bolivia, in Argentina with the Mapuche people. It happened in Peru. We supported them. We still support them. The Zapatista can be considered the seed for the indigenous people insurgency. The subcommander Marcos initiated the revolt with the indigenous peoples on the 1st of January 1994, the day that started the free trade agreement between the US and Mexico. And here we can see the alliance between the indigenous identity and the globalization idea. Sinead McGrath has travelled widely through Latin America and has lived in Argentina, where she received an MA in International Relations from the University of Salvador in Buenos Aires and more recently in Colombia. Sinead lectures on the Migration and Development module of the BA at Maynooth University. Her Latin experience has told her not only about social justice and inequality, but about the more need for human rights and political discourse to be mainstreamed. 
Um, well, the first thing is, well, I, I grew up in a kind of a strange family because my father was a translator, and he was a translator in the United Nations, and he translated Spanish and French. So, so I studied Spanish and Italian in, in uh, Trinity College, and eventually I made it to uh, Argentina and Brazil, where I did some volunteering um, as a teacher. Uh, in, in a favela in Porto Alegre. So when I came back, I applied uh, for a scholarship to study international relations in Buenos Aires. And I was lucky enough to get uh, this. It was a peace fellowship. Um, and I went back to live in Buenos Aires for two years. Um, and as part of the same scholarship, then I got the chance to live in Costa Rica and visit Nicaragua. And so it was a fantastic, over the, a few years, it was in the back of my mind for so long. And I like to say to people, that, you know, it takes a long time to get plans together. But then in the space of two, three years, I, I spent a lot of time there. So, And I've been back and I've been back to Mexico and, and now I'm studying Colombia. So I worked with Colombian refugees in Costa Rica. So... What's left a huge impact on me has been Mexico. It's the last place I visited in Latin America. I went to Chiapas, uh, went to Oaxaca, um, Puebla, um, and then and then Defe, the, the, the capital city. Um, and they are so different. Their their culture is different. Their food is different. Um, the architecture, the costumes. But I there's something about Latin America which is incredible because people are not scared to speak their minds when it comes to. Um, justice um, in, and there is a very big development rhetoric in Ireland that we like to see ourselves as very charitable people um, whereas I think Latin Americans see themselves as very political people so they'll speak their minds uh, about politics and we've only started to do that in the last few years before that it was all about charity it was all about helping poor people or people in need and now it's about uh, justice and equality and uh, I think I like the fact that um, what I see in Ireland people who are finally talking about human rights, finally talking about justice and finally trying to make politicians accountable. Karen Jeffers is a human rights activist who has worked in Latin America for almost five years. She was awarded a Master of Philosophy in Peace Studies in 2008 from the Irish School of Ecumenics at Trinity College Dublin, where she specialised in non-violent forms of conflict resolution. During her studies, she became interested in international protective accompaniment, a model of social activism inspired by Gandhian non-violent philosophy. On completion of her master's, she travelled to Central America, where she learned Spanish and began putting the theory of international accompaniment into practice. Well, I'm from County Wicklow and um, I grew up there and... Then I studied sociology and anthropology at National University of Ireland Maynooth. Following that, I went on and did some studies in development courses. And then I ended up doing a master's in peace studies at the Irish School of Ecumenics in Dublin. During the, during the peace studies course, I was doing a course on conflict resolution and nonviolence. And we discussed um, a method of, of 
I suppose it's a, a non-violent method, non-violent intervention in uh, in conflict situations, and it's called international protective accompaniment. And international protective accompaniment works by um, international accompaniers, people who are connected in, I suppose, with with governments and with um, with other countries that are a bit more powerful in the political system. Um, standing side by side with with local activists in in other countries and using that influence that actual you know being international it's it's a very simple thing really um to enable them to uh, operate in a safe space to to prevent attacks happening from against them or to draw attention and legitimacy to their case it's a very unequal system obviously this system that we have but um I felt like international protective accompaniment at least uses that inequality in a positive way to to raise the voices of people whose voices have been silenced, you know. So the first experience I had of accompanying somebody in that way was um was when I was in Nicaragua and this was previous to Peace Brigades International was was a it's a small indigenous community from the Pacific coast of Nicaragua who'd been involved in a land dispute with a with a an a US investor who basically they lived on a beautiful beach and the beautiful beach um had an amazing wave and so a lot of surfers would come to this part of Nicaragua trying to surf this wave but there was no hotels or anything built up there because the stretch of land backing onto the this particular beach was owned by the indigenous community it was communal property so they staged a protest against him and they were there for um they were they camped on their land um to prevent him from building on it and at some point he did he threatened them at gunpoint and the community fled the land and i met them shortly after that and they said that they would like to go back to the land and they would go back with international accompaniment and so myself and another person i was traveling with at the time um, met with the community several times and we, we put together this strategy that we would go and we would accompany them on the land. I applied to the project, the Columbia Project of Peace Brigades International, I think when I was, I don't know, um, in 2011, 2010 or 2011. And I went and worked there from January 2011 until the end of 2012. I had a particular interest in working with Peace Brigades International because, I mean, they're they're an organisation who've been doing this type of work for a very long time. They started uh, 35 years ago, actually. And I thought that this organisation seemed to fit very much with what I what I believed. We work on the request of local people who have invited us as internationals there to accompany them. We don't interfere with their work. We don't tell them how to do their work. We don't think we know how to do their work. You know, we think that local people have the solutions to their conflicts and to their problems. They can best address them. They're best equipped to do so. But unfortunately, many of them are threatened because they, they, they're they also vulnerable to that, you know. So if we can keep a safe space for them to work in, that's what we want to do. They talk about reverse culture shock, which a lot of people suffer from when they, when they come back to their own culture and they see it with different eyes, you know. Things are really different. Your perspective change. You change, you change, you see things in, from a completely different light and you know you understand your privilege from a very different point of view I don't want to forget any of the people who've touched my life you know and I want to hopefully 
be able to support them and enable them to continue doing what they're doing because I, I really believe that it's important and I put that into practical steps in setting up the Irish branch of Peace Brigades International and through that we receive the defenders when they come over here, people who are at particular risk at a particularly risky time we bring them over, they speak with our our politicians and with our establishment and that's communicated to their governments and that does keep them safe. As Karen Jeffers witnessed the strength of social movements in Latin America, Nick Jones, who started our programme in Chiapas, southern Mexico, had moved to Ecuador, where in 2002 he participated in a peaceful tree-sitting camp with a local group, Action for Life, an experience that took him to an Ecuadorian jail. Um, Well, I decided to go to Ecuador because... I felt it was a place where I could make a difference. I was really interested in the indigenous movement there as well, um, because in some ways they were actually stronger than in Mexico. There's more indigenous people in, in Ecuador. They'd already won a lot of rights, um, and they got rid of quite a few presidents. We were in the Latin America Solidarity Center one day, and this Ecuadorian guy poked his head around the door. And he turned out to have been the... Uh, the guy in charge of indigenous health issues for one of the main indigenous organizations in Ecuador. And he just talked us into going there. He, that's how we did. We found ourselves in a plane to Ecuador. So it was, it was also very tough in that I thought, ah, oh, the Andes, oh, it's a paradise, whatever. And it wasn't actually. And you could see actually the impact of people having cut down trees to get land. They've been encouraged to do this by the government. It had a really bad effect on the soil and we ended up just setting up some adult education classes for the local people and I think it was just really our presence there in a community that lived side by side with the kind of the Mestizo village and suffered from a lot of racism from the Mestizos. It helped on a kind of a moral level for the indigenous communities that we were there. There was a kind of a gathering it was more student-based, really. It was the students were kind of hosting it against, again, against neoliberal uh, economics um, up in Quito in the capital. And there were lots of different groups who came along. And at the end, we went into the oil town of Lago Agrio. And the locals had organised this protest, which um, we went along and saw. There was a little protest, protest camp in a village called Mindo, which the locals had organised um, because the government and an oil consortium were trying to push through a new oil pipeline to the coast, uh, which ran along a whole series of volcanoes and um, through cloud forest. Um, I spent four days there. Um, I got up, I think it was probably the Monday morning. We were climbing down the hill to catch the bus back, back to Quito. And in the end, we didn't have to catch the bus back because... There was a big police commando waiting for us and they threw us all in their bus and took us back to the, the jail in Quito. And After a week in jail, Nick Jones and all other activists were freed without charges. This was Nick's last time in Latin America. But while he thinks of going back, the Latin American experience has clearly defined his life. I suppose the first thing was that it gave me great courage and a lot of hope. Just to see people fighting so hard for what they believed in with really very little to hope for because their means were so slight and they were up against so much 
and yet they just kept going and going and going. And the belief that that people were basically good and that they could communicate with other people that they'd never met. I mean, I'm, these are people who had seldom been out of their community, maybe down to the local town to sell something at the market. But just that strength and that positivity is really enlightening. Lots of other things um, I love for the land because I spent so much time just working with them, using hand tools, breaking my back, calling maize. I, I started, when I came back to Ireland, started to grow my own food and try and grow it organically and in ways. And to believe that actually farmers could make a difference and, and we could do things ecologically um, and locally as well. It made a difference because when I was there, I learned Celtal. Um, that's the one of the local Mayan languages. Um, and so when I came back, I kind of felt, hey, like I learned Celtal, but I've forgotten most of my Irish. So I went back to Irish classes and I learned it pretty well. And now like I speak Irish to my daughter and to quite a lot of my friends. A belief in togetherness as well. Sudden moments of beauty that strike you all of a sudden out of nowhere. That's what I really took from Mexico and Ecuador. We want to thank Nick Jones, Sinead McGrath and Karen Jeffers for their testimony in this programme. For more information on NGOs featured in this programme, visit our Near FM website. In our next programme, we will discuss the links between farmers in Ireland and Latin America. Are they in competition or solidarity? We hear from Fergal Anderson, an Irish member of the Farmers International Movement, via Campesina. And we will have some guests in this studio discussing the role of Ireland and the European Union on trade and financial decisions. This programme was co-produced with the Latin American Solidarity Centre. For more information, visit lask.ie. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.